Welcome to Dance Futures, the podcast that discusses dance as a way of life with people who've made it central to theirs. It's series two, people! The crowd go wild. Um, And this is episode one. Now, because my first guest this series was just so interesting and I was just could have given all the time in the world, this episode is a little bit longer than usual. So listen to it in your own way, break it up into bite-sized chunks, sprinkle it on your smoothies in the morning, get in the bath, um, but be sure to stay to the end for Robin and Luca's digestif uh, moment where they kind of discuss their take on the interview. It brings a whole new meaning to the concept of ghosting just in time for Halloween as well. Um, now, because it's a bit longer than usual, for those of you that listened last series, you'll know that I usually love to get my geek on and share with you some aspect of dance research or academia that I'm particularly kind of vibing with. Um, but I'm going to miss out the full length version of that this time. But for those fellow geeks out there, there are plenty of references to follow up. And I'm just going to quickly, I just can't resist, um, recommend uh, one of them right now. So a book by Bojana Kunst in 2015 called Artist at Work, The Proximity of Art and Capitalism. In it, she talks about the idea of the project, this term that has become like so prolific in how we describe the work that we're doing and so generalised too in many ways. Uh, But she also discusses the artist's practised ability to conceive of what is yet to happen. And I'm just going to leave that hanging, which I think it's such a fascinating thought with lots of different kinds of repercussions and just thinking about that as you listen to the interview I think will make sense of it so what is yet to happen is about to happen episode one here we go I'm absolutely delighted thrilled and excited to have my first guest as um, Theo Clinkard uh, choreographer based recently based in the southwest having relocated from London I believe is that right Theo? Relocated from Yorkshire. Oh Yorkshire I just yeah. did that awful thing where I just presumed the world is London centric. <laughs> <laughs> no London, Brighton, Yorkshire and now back in Cornwall but moving to Devon. Excellent well that's great news as far as I'm concerned as I'm down here in deepest darkest Cornwall. Um, thanks so much for your time today. Um, and time is kind of one of the things I hope that we're going to really talk about um, in a bit. But uh, I think I said to you that one of my goals on this podcast is partly to kind of slightly demystify what it is that we do in this niche world whilst whilst defending the niche. I'm a self, self-confessed dance geek and uh, defend those disciplinary boundaries quite strongly sometimes. But um, yeah, so I'm interested in uh, the first question I often ask is around this notion of practice and how you might describe what is your practice if you were talking about it in quite kind of layman's terms perhaps to somebody who wasn't uh, totally in this bubble of contemporary dance. I think the word practice came into my frame only like in the last couple of years like as a dancer I was really like a jobbing dancer working for a lot of different kind of fairly established companies and smaller projects but I, as I understood it, we were like making shows and I was jumping between different things. There was a lot of work around. There was more work around at that time, I think. 
and you know fortunate in many ways but the point is like I was just like okay now I'm working with this person and this is important to them and we're making that show about that and now I'm going to leave them and work with that over there and just wasn't really developing and forming something that was my own I suppose Mm -hmm. and as I I think there's something about 90s training I might be wrong it might be very unique to my training but it was like being this kind of like neutral body ready to receive stylistic content and adapt and translate or be some kind of vehicle for someone's vision and I think then when I went to make my own work I was like well who am I then and how do I move what do I care about where do I work from do I have a practice you know so in one sense I was really kind of lobbying for like dancer centric thinking and an acknowledgement of a dancer's career as a carefully curated pathway if you like um because there was a lot of focus on choreographers but at the same time, when I went to make work, I was like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> it was a really <laughs> like, transition period of like getting into a studio. I was teaching a lot, but I was getting mm. into a studio like, what, how do I want to move? Like, I really now understand this idea of colonialized body. Like it was really like, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, it belonged to a lot of other voices. I think that's so important what you're saying for the student listeners amongst us to kind of hear you talking like that, because actually I think a lot of, we bandy this word practice around, but a lot of them, obviously also as a dancer or choreographer in training, you're figuring that out, you know, as you're, as you're going, and we're all still figuring that out, but it can seem like when you say my practice or your practice, that people know what they're talking about. But I guess part of the idea of practice is it's something that you're constantly kind of refining, that's emerging, that's changing, right? Yeah, and I think that then, I suppose I, something developed when I started to make my own work. I started to, you know, I did that thing where you make your first piece and you put every idea you've ever had into it. And then you go, well, what was that? And significantly, after I'd made my first piece, I was working with a, well, I brought in a mentor, uh, Becky Hilton, Rebecca Hilton. She's based mm-hmm. at Doc, Stockholm. She's Australian. She danced in New York for years. She was in the process at the time, this was 2014, where she was interviewing Xavier Loire, um, Jerome Bell, um, Martin Spanberg. Like, so she was writing a book at the time. Um, so she was really curious around making. She doesn't necessarily identify as a choreographer. She works with dance in different ways. So I decided to rather than have her come into my studio because I was just too scared for that. I was like, <laughs> let's have lunches where we talk about dance in the wider sense. And through that, those ongoing conversations across one week in Melbourne, um, I managed to unpick a lot of things about my first piece and then understand a little bit like what I cared about, where I was working from, what I might do next with just more information. And I suppose I say this because I had no formal training in choreography. Mm-hmm. I started working from the age of 17 with Matthew Bourne. And I've done, you know, I have, don't even have A-levels, let alone anything beyond that, I have GCSEs, <laughs> and then a dance, <laughs> like a physical dance career. So mm. I think through, I think practice is kind of, Oh God, it's a, it, it's a hard one. I feel like there's themes, there's things that run through what I do. Um, and that includes design. So I'm spending a lot of my energy or have been designing work for other people, designing operas. And then once I started to choreograph my own work, I wanted to then field my design, my dancing, my producing, if you like, all into my own work rather than um, shipping it out to others. 
it's so funny when we talk about practice I realize practice is all I have like yeah. I don't have an academic theorizing or writing or is there an opposite of practice or I don't know like all I've done is doing yes yeah <laughs> I, like. no, I love that question the opposite of practice what's the opposite of practice I suppose I'd like to think that theory is an opposite to practice because exactly. in the doing you are in effect testing theories also even yeah. if they are in a different form but yeah I think that's really interesting to think if if there's the doing there's the there's that thing about knowing how and knowing that isn't there knowing about something rather than knowing how to do it but I think that oversimplifies again some of those relationships but I love that question the opposite of practice <laughs> So basically, I got a sewing machine in 2000 and started making clothes, copying things that I had, literally drawing around them. Like I have never worked from a pattern, but that mm -hmm. really built up. I started to make clothes for other people, people that went then making one-off shows. So I would do costumes for people, start styling, and then it just picked up. Actually, there was a big step I started to a guy called Stuart Lang, an amazing Scottish director and designer. Um, invited me to do costumes with him. So he was directing shows and doing set design and really liked what I'd been doing. So he invited me to work with him and I dove straight into 150 costumes opera in Sweden. The, I, I came to, I mean, I, as a kid, I was like making puppets and masks and then dancing a little bit on the side. So mm -hmm. you've grown up around knee high and things like that. It's just like in your blood yes. in the West somehow. So I was just like, I wanted to get involved in those things. And then, so being, working with my hands and with my eyes in that way um, has a lot more flow in some sense for me and I think I got to a point where I'd become a young adult what was I 23 or something got a sewing machine and I was really missing this kind of ability this opportunity to be on the outside really dealing with aesthetics really dealing with image making and and doing it very very intuitively like it wasn't like this is a clever choice for some particular reason. I was just like missing everything I was doing at the time was like, um, turn the camera off your body or, or let that visual edit role be for someone else as a dancer. So as a dancer, my role was just kind of be inside of the thing rather than calculating or judging or fine tuning. And I missed that. So mm. I found costume was a way to do that actually. Um, Interesting, yeah. Uh, I, love, I love this description of your childhood interests and how that's kind of played out in your later career because I think sometimes you know especially I'm working with university age people that there's this thing where you have to make this choice and you specialize and then with dance sometimes it kind of you come into the studio and sort of box off the all the other aspects of your life and actually it's all that all the messy stuff and all the interests and all the other things that make you who you are that make you an interesting you know dance artist in so many ways and so I love to hear how it was just something else that you were doing and that those two things have kind of come together I think um, those early formative I think on some level we're always trying to recreate some early experience that we had I was like leaping around at home I would say like leaping around with Kate Bush and fabric in this very room actually <laughs> like and then love that I feel like I had a book of Sleeping Beauty and then Sleeping Beauty came to Plymouth Theatre Royal and I realised it was almost like my book came to life. You know, it was like, oh, I'm now seeing that on stage and that's a story I know and images I know. And I fell in love with The Witch, you know, which was like basically Anthony Dowell in drag, <laughs> which all now makes more sense. Yeah. But I was like, 
the wicked one, you know, the theatrics of it. And then was doing once a week ballet, which was quite um, a brilliant teacher, Bridget L. Braxton, like brilliant, enthusiastic, creative teacher. But it was still this kind of coded dance. And I feel like I've always wanted to get back to that pre, mm. like actual expressive mover. And I do remember my primary school, they took us to some dance workshop. I have no idea who was running it. But I had this one memory of an afternoon in Launceston where we had to be fire and we had to be water. And it was the best thing I'd ever done. And that, yeah. then I had no idea how to get, didn't even think that that might be a career or that that was, I don't know, it was just, it was profound. And I feel like I spent the rest of my life trying to get back to that kid who unashamedly was like, I am fire because my totally. imagination tells me I'm fire and I can be what I want to create, you know. Yeah, I think that's a really um, beautiful description of how for so many people their sort of journey into dance begins with a feeling and, and then it's kind of like following that feeling and then there's all this training but often there's also this process of unlearning that has to happen and that can happen at different points for different people right and, and different paces and all of that and it, it's one of those things do you have to know certain things about the form and able to in order to be able to then as a an adult kind of go back to that originary feeling or, or something of it or find it I don't know I think it's a really tough call I mean my my training was all physical so I was at Elmhurst Ballet School and then Rombert School and I wasn't there was no writing there was no essay writing I mean at the end of the end of that course this is in the 90s you got a piece of paper which basically went well done <laughs> that was kind of your qualification. <laughs> and and that's the 90s. Like, I've, got, <laughs> I've got a fetish for 90s cultural theory and 90s trainers. And <laughs> I just, I love it. Even though there's some terrible <laughs> things too. Like Perth. So I really, and I, I think I now realise I would have been really into the writing and the theory and mm. I just didn't go that university route or even, I mean, it was a vocational school, but it wasn't affiliated with the university at the time. So that wasn't part of it. And I think, you know, part of me now would love to go and do an MA or something. I don't know if I could do an MA without a degree, but, you know, to go and be immersed in that. But I do see people who are making work, I'm going to be really blunt, making work intuitively, go into that kind of training, come out the other end, paralyzed, don't know how to even start because they're busy analyzing or editing themselves before they're dreaming. And I think yeah. there is something about I mean, I didn't start choreographing as soon as I graduated. It took me 18 years or something. Whereas someone like Gary Clark graduated, was already making work, carried on making work. And I think that there, at the time I was like, ah, oh, some people just brave it and go for it. And they don't, I felt like I needed to know, know the lay of the land before I could go, well, what do I think? You know, and I yeah. stopped, stalled for years because I didn't have something to say. And then eventually I was like, I'm just gonna apply for funding to get in the studio and see what happens not because I've got a reason or because I've got a an urge to say something in particular I just want to see what that role of directing feels like so I had some mm. kind of long frameworks to uh, stimulate improvisations and set material and just became really addictive to be seeing something take shape that you'd initiated and to be in conversation with great dancers and from, from the outset I was working with people who were not necessarily moving like me and I think that stayed 
somehow I'm waffling a bit into different territories but um, that's fine it's great that's it's that's what it's all about what I picked up from that though again I just wanted to say like uh yes you very much could do an MA without a degree just quickly in answer to your question um and that is part of, <laughs> yay <laughs> whether you want to or not is another matter but, but I think it relates in a way to the idea of like practice-based research again and the fact that the in hierarchies of knowledge often you know there can be this tendency within institutions within the academy to um you know to add more value if there's writing and if there's a certain kind of knowledge and obviously a massive part of dance studies has also been to shout about and make noise about the fact that the dancers knowledge and the practical knowledge and the doing is still knowledge and it's that's so important and I think kind of getting away from that divide hopefully still allows you to make that work intuitively but also to kind of glean from it some really fascinating stuff about human relationships, about the world around us, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I think when I went like, so now I'm imagining myself walking in to do an MA and kind of putting people on pedestals because they know more and mm. you know, not, not embodying the knowledge that I have or doubting it. And, and I think there's something really, as soon as you, I hear you talk, it's like, Oh yeah, of course. The tutor would also be kind of like questioning and doubting what they're saying. You're you're in a place of figuring out, not trying to figure out what to do to please the teacher. You know, like yeah, and that right there is such a Western kind of you know, like we're so kind of conditioned, aren't we? That's such a Western notion of like how we learn that we've taken on from school, and again, this unlearning that we're having to do about actually again these hierarchies, these things student and lecture I'm a lecturer and I'm constantly trying to sort of dismantle that but it can be really unsettling for people as well because actually they want someone at the front just telling them what to do and when you go I'm sorry but philosophy doesn't have yes or no answers so we're gonna have to open this one up it's quite uh, disorient <laughs> it's quite disorientating as well I find the same in creative processes like working with different companies and meeting dancers who are trying to figure out a bar that I might have set that they're trying to meet and I'm like mm. there is one it's like what whatever what moves you or how might you approach this in a different way to me like I'm not going to give you a template and some people absolutely freak out by that yeah. and and I can see why because I can see my own training which has had different strands but including a very classical formal one the idea the word improvisation you know the idea is just like <laughs> like couldn't possibly move without being sure that what I did was gonna be right. Just this yeah. right, wrong binary. And I think that that's kind of, there's been layers of shedding that and it's constant for me, but I think that I try to teach from a place whereby that isn't even in the room. It can't yeah. be in the room. Like you've got, all got a different perspective, a different history. And, and I have to remember there's other people teaching from that perspective, even in a kind of academic setting. You yeah know. definitely and we've all we've all got things to share and learn off each other and it's just about how we how we value that um I yeah, think I'm... I read something love sorry no go recently which feels like it relates to that which is this idea of younger mentors so the mentorship mm. might not be someone older than you or with more experience in that sense but right now I feel like more than ever I'm tuning in with like the people younger than me what are their questions? What's going on for them? You know, identity politics, all those kind of things. You it's are just like... so on point with that, Theo. That's exactly why I've got the lovely Robin and Luca who will reflect yes. with me a bit on your conversation because they're bringing 
all this other energy and thinking and perspectives to me that I don't have. And it's not, you know, that this, the thing of being older is somehow therefore more yeah. informed or. And that's shifted in my lifetime. Like my teachers and the teachers above, above my generation, if you like, there was still a lot of like drip down power, kind of like we suffered, therefore you shall suffer. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Answer to teacher um, trans, uh, um, transition, you know. So it's yeah. like the jobbing dancer of the 70s, if you like, who pushed, 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 had it hard and then wanting to kind of pass that on rather than, I don't know, opening up a conversation even. And that maybe that's different in vocational training. But I feel like even the people I know who are now teaching at, conservatoires and stuff are shifting that kind of relationship and it's systemic isn't it and that's you know this is what so many people are grappling with today yeah. is is these systemic changes and how we make them at the micro level of whatever it is we're involved in and I yeah. think dance has a really really important role to yeah. play in that because of its capacity for kind of generating certain ways of being together and certain ways of relating to each other I think it's just something really interesting that part of the resistance to that will be young people who want Absolutely. a guy and you know like I forget yeah. that but I, but I know from starting ballet at a really young age I craved that I craved like if I can see you do it and I can replicate it then I know that I'm on track but then you get to middle age and you're really confused <laughs> but you had totally it's like who doesn't want a bit of order in the chaos man the world's (laughs) chaos just give me a five six seven eight (laughs) (laughs) um so i want i really wanted to take spend some time time talking about your project the century project yeah um which is current but also very very appropriate for the title of this this uh, podcast actually is dance futures and kind of yeah. uh the role of the imagination in that i guess when i conceived of this i was interested in how we might imagine a world where dancing was a more taken for granted practice so we didn't have to have it in these sort of hermetically sealed areas of our lives but somehow it, it spilt over into into our existence in a more general way um yeah. something that i do but probably look like a slight madwoman as a result um <laughs> but could you describe sort of I know it's such it's there's so many strands to it yeah but could you describe it for listeners in a kind of nutshell form Three words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a twitter thread please <laughs> so I yeah I, I I started to discover pieces of work which were I think the term is longitudinal so work in literature and music in um, I think like engineering and then also policy making this idea of kind of looking beyond well for example the lifespan of a human so how might a work continue into the future or be sent into the future or be considering younger people coming through people who are not even born yet or audiences who are not born yet um, or readers if you like for, for the kind of book stuff Um, I got really excited about the idea that there might be a different way of working with dance that wasn't about what's now, what's next, what's your next piece, Uh, what's hot now, what isn't hot, (laughs) you know, so how could I, in a way, bypass some of the systems, but also think differently about how I used dance or what dance might be able to do and set about making a hundred year dance project. And I think 
yeah, initially was thinking about something that was a bit like a time capsule that was put made, put to sleep and premiered in 100 years. So that became a kind of like goal or a single event at the end. And then through the research, tried to think a bit more differently about the people. So that would have been passed through different generations of dancers. But once I started working with dancers, they were like, well, how can we all like be contributors? Like, how can we take part in this rather than be messengers? You know, mm -hmm. so it was stimulated by them. And I was like, yeah, this should be something which takes place maybe every five years. So I could go on about all the tangents that we didn't take. So I'll talk about what we have arrived yes. at <laughs> developing. Um, so rather than a choreography, rather than a content or me producing something and therefore putting my body, my experience, if you like, into the center of the room, I've tried to think about making a piece of work as creating a space. So you could almost imagine it like a studio, if you like. Um, so when I start, realized I wasn't going to do a five, six, seven, eight and everyone learn it and hold on to it for five years and teach someone else in five years, it was around the same time that I started to think about because working as a designer, how can I bring that in? And I decided, well, I've, I'm weaving a carpet, basically. I'm weaving a five by five meter carpet out of donated t-shirts. I started a year ago. I just winged it, Googled how to make a t-shirt rug, asked people to send me stuff. And it's been ongoing through the last year. So I have a one meter by one meter loom. I'll eventually have a five by five meter or 30 rugs basically so I've done 20 got 10 to go and this carpet will be a place for dancing and upon that rug um so the, the rug is the continuity of the project so that mm -hmm. continues beyond all of our lives um and the rug will witness change that we can't even imagine I mean already it's been delayed because of a virus so god knows what happens but yeah. the rug is the continuity as audiences die or audiences are born, <laughs> the rug's there to witness it. That's the idea that there's a, a thread through, if you like. And so that shifted my relationship to making content. So I was thinking, well, if I think about choreography as an organization of people, place, time, action, then the structure of this project, an event that happens every five years um, with a group of dancers is my choreography. And what takes place on the rug can be very, very simple. So what we've arrived at is every five years, an event which is 10 consecutive days. Each of those 10 days, 10 different dancers are embodying the work. And the practice is literally a slowing of the body. Mm -hmm. So slowing right down. I use the term slowing so that that's relative for everyone's different experience of their body or experience of moving rather than slow motion for example but the challenge is to kind of move as slowly as as possible and that's for 10 hours so they've kind of kind of got a glacial sculpture if you like which maybe produces quite an objective image-based experience for people witnessing it so interjected in that is this invite for performers sorry the dancers to share what they're thinking. In this moment, I'm thinking about, mm -hmm. in this moment, I'm thinking about. So we just have been practicing this with different workshops that I've been doing. And it kind of like punctuates the stillness, if you like, with these subjective experiences of the body, of time, of what's going on in the land at that moment. The sharing can be of anything. And then we have somebody who's a scribe, who's right capturing that to build an archive each dancer, there's, there's 10 books, so each dancer can contribute to, can sit out and do a bit of writing uh, about their experience of the project or of being in the world. 
And the last thing I'm going to say for now is <laughs> we don't think of it as a kind of performer audience relationship. It's not going to entertain you. It's not going to perform for you. Yeah. This will be happening if you witness it or not. You're very welcome to come. We'd love you to come. But it's very slow. But the thing is, it's really quite absorbing to watch. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like I was going to say boring, but I, I kind of celebrate boring. I feel like we don't value it enough because it's like it invites a different way of being in your body as you witness but um I yeah I'm just shifting away from an audience performer um terminology for this yeah and having um having taken part in one of those workshops where where we did a sort of mini version of the practice um it's also very absorbing to do um Mm. and those little that invitation to say at this moment I'm thinking about, as you said, invites uh, this range from like very profound to utterly ridiculous to um, observational uh, yeah. to sort of insight into the process. It's, it had all these functions, which for me kind of revealed the complexity in something very simple and yeah. also the humanity in the, the just the humanity of just being there doing it um which I found like very very compelling I guess um and yet at the same time this notion of like the deep time the idea of deep time right or longitudinal as you say which is a term that also gets used in research when you're studying say an individual over 20 years for example or or whatever is that you get this um that somehow it also is about like you I think you said this at the beginning decentralizing the human so there's this relationship to the world and to uh, to society really that 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 is decentralizing their individualistic they're kind of the thing about the work existing you even existing the work's gonna outlive you for example I mean that's such a fascinating rich uh concept I find and and I wondered Mm, yes I just was going to say that there was something I think you said it or wrote it somewhere about it being a kind of in a way a leap of faith or an act of hope and I'm really interested in the idea of hope I guess in this day and age about it being something very active that we have to sort of activate within ourselves um, in spite of what has gone before and in spite of everything that's going on so that it's not it's not just a case of like of of something that we might just feel spontaneously. I feel like we have to activate it. And I feel like what you're doing with this project is an act of hope, I guess. And I, and I love that. And I wondered if you could maybe talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think um, I have so many things to say after just like, <laughs> which- Yes, of course. I hope they go down. Um, I, so my early thinking was like, we, the first thing we need to do is guarantee for people that in a hundred years, this piece will premiere. So with that old thinking, I was like, I need to chat to Alistair Spaulding at Sadler's Wells. I need to book in <laughs> in a hundred years time. <laughs> Love that. Which was a nice different invite. It was like, can you write into your constitution that in a hundred years time, whoever's running Sadler's Wells will definitely premiere this work. And he was like, this is so exciting. If this landed on my plate today from a hundred years ago, I'd be thrilled to you know, to put that on. So there was something lovely about that different different work that someone else can make. <laughs> um, but it was a bit like I need to convince people that this project is not just a kind of pie in the sky. And I think then when I chatted to David Haradine, who maybe you've mm-hmm, yeah. 
yeah he's been my mentor for this project and in the wider sense um he was saying the beauty of this project is the leap of faith it is the hope that you're sending something into time it could easily fail we all know it could easily fail um what we mean by failure i guess is up for grabs but um will people care about this and the idea that you might propose something in the hope that other dancers might care about the same things um, and want to take part or produce or embody this practice um, is, is, is a leap of faith. But I think that it's really made me think about the values that are core to it and how they might be plural. So even down to, you know, before the re- or during the research, it was like the seven dancers I've been working with recently, each choose someone else to pass it on to. And it was quite insular. And then through lockdown, I was running this with a friend, uh, Grace Nickel. We were running, she's a Falmouth graduate. She is. Um, <laughs> we were running understory. So I was chatting to lots of different dancers of different backgrounds, ages, everything, all the spectrums, um, uh, to invite them to give a talk. And it really made me reflect on this project and how it was quite a closed shop. And that when I led workshops, people were like, how do I take part? And I'd be like, you can't, I'm afraid. So <laughs> then I was like, well, maybe I should adopt the understory kind of approach and that this needs a wide, wide range of voices. So this 10 day thing uh, and 10 different dances each day is so that 100 dancers can take part in the project and that the perspectives, those subjective um, spoken experiences mm-hmm. are a really wide pool. So I think then that can be more likely something that people care about in the future because it's not as even less about me i'm trying to yeah. make like which is not about me and as someone said i did a workshop in slovenia and they were like well you literally have made a platform for other people like it can't really be less about you i don't know i'm still questioning the edges of what agency do i give how can it be more um in, invite more of an invite to for people to adapt it to change it mm-hmm. to respond like yeah, other, yeah, yeah. like still yeah. that kind of satellite project possibility for this but um i think this idea of as a white able-bodied neurotypical cis gay male like how how do i be part of the dance ecology how can i make mm-hmm. work which doesn't center my voice but um make space but doesn't deny my space but is like an open open arms and I think about this idea of hosting so could you make work with the idea of a host uh, like a dinner party host yeah. for a plural range of voices I suppose and I guess that's where the the carpet is like this in some senses a really beautiful way of doing that and quite a simple proposition in one way of this kind of place of like just creating a place and but also in terms of I know you've just talked about how um it's not about you but um I was reading uh, this thing by Boyana Kunst who I hope I've said that right and uh she was um talking about as dance artists getting into this uh, projective temporality so when you talk about future um we're so used to and I speak as someone who used to freelance before this job as well we're so used to dreaming up projects that are going to happen in the future and having to like know everything about them and you know writing down these things you're going to do uh in next year and whatever and um you get so used to that that sometimes um 
she talks about how it has a habit of absorbing the actual work itself. So the art, the artistry, if you like, the artistic practice. And I guess I was thinking about you weaving that carpet and how that it must be a way to really stay present with the yeah. project, right? Does it function yeah. like that for you or? Absolutely. And I think I've spent the last year going, how on earth do we produce this piece? And I spent the last six years asking that, but especially this last year with the change in the whole world, uh, it's like there was no funding a year ago. Like there wasn't even an opportunity to, to apply for funding, but also, well, what are we applying it for and how is it adapting because of COVID? Um, so the weaving was really a chance to, I mean, it was one of the dancers, she was Leah, Leah Marovic, who I work with, she was like, you should make the carpet yourself. You shouldn't commission someone to make it. Make it yourself. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, someone telling me what to do. Great. But it became this way of a bit like knitting is for people, you know, like yeah. a meter, you know, a yeah. meter through an experience of time. Uh, and it's slow, you know, it takes a long time. And I can do one in a day if I really, really push it, but it's less pleasurable. And it's really goal-based if I'm doing that. And I'm trying to... Like I've not done one for three months or something. Like I'm trying to do it when I really feel it and come back into the project. Um, but it's it sustained me, you know, yeah. it gave structure through this last year, which a load of us were craving. Not everyone, not everyone was missing that. And people were in very different experiences. And I think we would always have to be careful not to assume, assume we've all just absolutely a year and a half. Um, but for me, it was like, ah, how can I keep being involved in this project and keep the momentum up? And um, yeah, the weaving was a lovely way to do that. And I think that, yeah, it lands you in the moment. And I think the slow motion lands you in the moment in terms of what Boyana was saying. Mm. It's like, it's something which has a depth, a kind of epic scale, but feels very personal and intimate. Um, and I think a different kind of thinking, I suppose more and more it's becoming a bit like, what thinking is produced by slowing down? What thinking is produced mm. by moving? And I'm not doing that in a kind of, at the moment, in a kind of scientific collaboration with a, you know, a university. But I mean, I think there's opportunity. There's so many strands, environment even. Like there's so yeah. many things that we can start looking at with this project. And I think that brings me back to, you said the word simple. And I was like, yeah, like how can the simplest dance, just slowing down, we call it a dance, slowing down. How can that produce the maximum thinking? Who yeah. are we now? Who are we going to be? Who else is around? How long do we have? What is this rug going to witness? Is it going to be flooded? You know, like, yeah, we empathise with an audience who aren't born yet. You know, what world are they living in? Will there be a, a thirst for contemporary dance? Will robots be doing this project in a year, in 100 years time? You know, so like, just loads of questions. I just want to stimulate all the questions. And I think that's why the dance needs to be really simple. Mm -hmm. So not to be clouded with like, wow, who's that and who's that? And are they interesting? And what they're doing, is that fascinating? Do I care about what the body can do? No, just slow the whole thing down. Make it really simple, not boring, simple. <laughs> so that you're stimulated. And I think there is this thing when I see stuff on stage, the less, in one really simplistic way, the less that happens on stage, the more I start doing as a watcher. Yeah, and there's, there's this thing around the spectacle of virtuosity, right? Which is that if you are... If you're given a load of virtuosity, you're just, wow, your senses are overwhelmed yeah. and that's what you're doing. And you are passive and you're just like receiving this in this quite kind of startled way, potentially. Yeah. Um, how, but how they're do we, slowing how do we down. Sit forward. How do we ask them to? Exactly. Leave? 
yeah yeah this different way of um watching and being with art which durational work has also opened up those questions where we can just be with something that's happening this idea of something happening and I think because of the the sort of scale of yours in terms of time though there's also a very particular role that the imagination has both for you the dancers and the audience in knowing the full breadth of that concept we are engaging with our imagination in a very particular way around the future which is what all those questions you've just described and I guess yeah I'm fascinated by the role of the imagination in this work I guess for you and for, for everyone involved that in a way is similar to that thing that we do as as independent artists as I was saying of projecting forward and thinking what the next thing is going to be but but harnessing that in a much more um sort of how can I describe it a much more amorphous way a much more kind of uh, rich way if you like than when we're just having to think through the logistics of a of a bid yeah it makes me think about I was thinking about the word absence but it's more imagination mm. like you say, like what is not in the room is louder than what's in the room almost. yes like the ideas around it and I suppose this is not the first time I've worked in a conceptual way but it's the most conceptual thing I've done in the way that hearing about other longitudinal projects, I didn't need to go to the church in Germany where a John Cage piece is being played for 680 years stretched <laughs> out. I don't need to go there to, I mean, you could argue I do, or what one does, but I get something from the idea of, from the concept of it. And I suppose that's why yep. I want to shout about Century Projects is because it's like the thinking will produce something for people who aren't even there. So it also de- destabilizes the idea of event but it's not so much about necessarily being there as the the thinking produced the imagination produced but this is also so great right in terms of what you we were talking about earlier about that divide between the doing and the thinking right because actually there's a ton of discourse that is being produced by the the thinking around this project and and the the research that's going towards it before any event or in excess of any event and that is you know the the really exciting thing for someone like me who is a bit of a theory geek as well where it's like the, there's so much that can be um drawn from the conversations around it and the dialogue I guess uh, what did you say um like I was just thinking I was just thinking it's a dialogue really that it's not a kind of yeah here's the thing and then here's the stuff that it's that come out of it and or like here's the theory and then we can go and watch the piece and be more informed it's very much yeah. a dialogue, dialogue between those two. And I, and I feel like what I'm, what I care about is that that is as, as a pro, do I mean accessible? I mean, as approachable as, as an idea for someone like my dad. So he could, I feel like most people could come to this idea or come to this event and go, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I think about myself in a different way, like this, I suppose it's a little bit, I've never thought about this until right now. It's a bit like flying in an airplane and seeing people on the street, but a kind of time version of that. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, you're gonna have to you can have to work with me here. What so if you're in an airplane and you see your house, if you fly over your home, you're like yes. you're getting a kind of perspective shift, you're zooming out. Yes, got you. Yeah, yeah. Time-based zoom out to go because I, you know, I was gonna call it the future project. And I was like, well, it's mm. only future project for the first round. 
Yeah. You know, it will be the historic project <laughs> very <laughs> quickly. It'll be the old piece. So it's like, to then go, oh, yeah, we're at a point in time which stretches forward, stretches backwards. And then also, you know, I need to read more about time and space theory because it's also like much more fluid and expansive than that. You know, I'm still in this kind of yeah. attached to line image. Yes. For time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, is not the case or necessarily the case. Um, but yeah, to kind of zoom out on a t- in a time frame on your experience of the planet and I feel like I feel like we're working on a climate project without talking directly it doesn't need people dressed as polar bears and ice literally melting it's something that's kind of by projecting something into the future you're like well what future is there one you yeah, know I think notion of sustainability that is so often attached to climate politics but that has such a Again, it's interesting because we're talking about decentralizing the human, but it also earlier in terms of deep time. But I think also there's a way that we need to bring in the conversation more about the human relationships that are part of this notion of sustainability. You know, that that that's as important as like the doing the recycling and finding the right materials that are going to, you know, not clog up the air. It's like also how we relate to one another, you know, and I often say that that is that's the role that dance can play as well right rather than necessarily having to be kind of going I'm going to make a piece about the fact that the snow caps are melting it's like no we need to value those that way of relating and I think the way that you're working with audience and performers is is really inviting that as well this different way of of seeing and being and experiencing time I guess so like you say that difference of yeah subjective experience of time and place the first it reminds me the first time we did a sharing um we did a one hour sharing for an invited audience and after so people were sat upright bolt upright on little benches and then after 20 minutes you know the classic dance piece length heads were on other people's shoulders or people were like leaning forward and then by the end of the hour people were like lying down with the dance not even necessarily oriented nice. towards looking at it it was like being with dance and i think that there's been various pieces where i think about seeing teaching Kohlberg morning class and then staying to see figure a C Deborah Hay piece how that invited me to be in my body witnessing not not staring at it but like with it and I think about untitled uh untitled what's the name of it and there's Avi Loire piece I saw at Pompidou in mm. France where there there's a um group of people I'm not going to try and describe it because I'll just diminish it but it invited a different way of watching mm. a different, or being with dance and I think that then that then is a kind of in, a different kind of embodied watching which doesn't ask you to be eyes on stalks in this kind of yeah. virtuoso theatre plane but um, how are you in your own body and how might something shift inside of you and how dance might be the tool that actually creates time like sometimes I think that dance can actually yeah up a gap can open up like a window for people rather than consume your time in the way that Netflix might with a kind of jeopardy I central. love that I absolutely love that way of describing it and I think it's really um yeah I think that's really key to also how I know that um how I experienced dance for example through the pandemic was this thing of sort of um as a very sh- as a shortcut route into kind of just opening up a space that was different you know and instead of kind of 
going through all these different motions and all the anxiety or whatever it was it was like a real a way to connect to myself obviously but I'm talking literally about like a I suppose moving away from the choreographic and into this more immediate sort of plug and play sort of kitchen disco sort of immediate just like boom I'm there and I think yeah that that dance can really do that it can really bring us into the now but also uh, yeah shape how we're experiencing time and space like you're saying yeah and I think that I mean I'm on a mission at the moment to re hobby ties hobbitize hobbit <laughs> to make dance a hobby again totally you know, I'm so down with that I'm yeah the professionalization also with my costuming like I'm really like get me back in touch with the fabrics and the weaving is doing that but I've also been making my other costumes for other productions but also the dancing just like how can it be for me again because I think the best dancing is the one that we do the one that mm. we're doing, the one that we take part in I think Jonathan Burroughs says this in Corvus Handbook is like something about particip participation is usually the way in you know and then yeah. we learn about this structure or system of going to see dance and being a, a witness to it but actually we've probably taken part in a workshop before that you've probably been out having a boogie and I just like uh, I don't know I just remember a shift maybe about five years ago of like oh at this point in class let's just put that music on and just dance like I don't need to instruct something like we can just like the partying can be much closer to the training than absolutely it was I trained it was just yeah. we'd have all frozen if someone just put music on and you just had to leap around you know it's like so and that relates, I, well, I think it's, um, yeah, there's so much to pick up on, isn't there? But um, the, yeah, I really recognise that, what you're saying, and, and this thing of allowing that feeling that we spoke about earlier that, that maybe brought you to dance and um, encouraging students as well to kind of remember that feeling, whether it's through your favourite track that you just whack on in the morning and, and have a boogie before class, that you're sort of trying to access that. And I guess in relation to sustainability, um, which we were talking about, obviously, in a really broad sense, but equally in terms of dancers' careers and um, just feeling resourced um, in this yeah. kind of world of fast-paced stuff, this idea of slowing down, but also the idea of allowing yourself to have those moments where it is just about that. It's just about whacking Whitney Houston on, sorry, and, and going for it and going, oh, yes, there it is. There's that thing that, that brought me here in the first place. Um, and that doesn't mean that you dismiss the artistry and you don't engage with the, the choreographic thinking, but it, it can, like you say, it doesn't have to be so far apart, perhaps. And I think that then I'm also thinking about in inclusive practice, hearing you speak, I'm just thinking about how then there's space for all bodies. And it then made me think, oh, I approached training that my body wasn't right, that I was training to make it right, to, to fine tune it, to get stronger, to make it better, <laughs> I don't know, rather than like the body you have is the one that you're working with and it's already great. And that goes for everyone and the dance that you're doing is already great. And how about you try this or think about this or while you're doing that, could you also, you know, rather than this body needs uh, beating into shape somehow, crafting. And I think that there's a lovely bit of text, a, um, Oh God, what's his name? Because <laughs> it always happens. Oh, he teaches at NYU. Um, Andre Lepecki? Yes, thank you. Um, he was writing again in a Kohlberg program, I think to frame, no, it wasn't the, 
Deborah Hapes, it was a Tragel Harrell and Esther Solomon double bill that they were performing, which was also startlingly good. Amazing, um, yeah. But the idea of the dancer as an experimenter. So he's writing in much, not necessarily simplistic language, but readable, <laughs> readable Yeah, he's pretty complex in some of the other work, yeah. So for a program, you know, for an audience program. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. Idea of the dancer as an experimenter, therefore, your history, your politics, your gender, your sexuality, your race, your yeah, your geography, all of those things are of the body and are of performance and can all be come into play. And and I think that, yeah, I feel like training institutions, you know, people are starting to open up to different ways of decentralizing the white western or decentralizing the kind of classical. I know. Yeah, just been really appreciating that change in in thinking over the last few years. And I remember when that wasn't the case, you know, I remember yeah. when this idea of ballet is a foundation, everything else stems out from there. And it's, yeah, it's time, time's up for that. But the other thing I was going to say is I have a real bugbear, like Go. release technique people saying but you need the structure to release from you need the strength you need the ballet so that you can do the release and when I learned that release the term was about release from old ideas old thinking hallelujah yeah being the thing about flopping around in relation to gravity yeah no? yeah yeah, yeah. And I think that so many people have got this like oh release is this kind of like I guess we don't really talk about release saving so much now but I don't know through Probably, probably a 90s thing, right? Probably a 90s thing. <laughs> no, yeah, but it's so like, like... It was like an argument for needing the ballet. The ballet yes. does the structure. You know, it's like, well, no, it's released from old ideas. It's not a... I don't know. I just... Again, I think as soon as anything gets... Yeah. Name, as soon as anything gets named and is and becomes a, like a trope or a or codified, uh, it's... it's it, well, you, <laughs> I mean, someone's making I, money out of it. Yeah, it's like it just, you know, it's reductive. Basically, it gets it gets reduced, as you say. And I think, but I think that invitation, that the way that you describe that inclusivity, is um, is really lovely and really a gorgeous way to sort of think about just yeah, being in the body you're in, bringing that one. There's a, such a huge amount again of literature around in the night from the 1980s. This kind of project that the body became in cultural theory, um, the body project and all the ways in which self-improvement is, it was such a kind of huge yeah. industry really and uh, how that's informed our own identities and subjectivities. And I think dance yeah. has always had a relationship to that, uh, not and not an, always a healthy one as we know. Um, and it's kind of finding ways to be in that ever evolving, unfinished process-based nature of dance. So our bodies are changing and evolving and that is exciting yeah. to feel changes in the body, right? And to kind of experience getting stronger at something or the agency of really driving to get, to get something is great, but it it falls too much often into this kind of self, self-critique and always looking at an image outside of yourself. So being in the body you're in, bringing that to the dance floor. Um, I love that. And it's a really good segue into my last question that I like to ask everybody as well, Theo, which is um, just for the younger people listening who are maybe in training, whether there's a word of advice or I think, I feel like we've almost done it anyway, but also this thing of, um, like I was saying about, if you just are really into dancing, but you don't, there's not a channel for it. Um, what would be your first, 
invitation or, or advice to those guys? I could talk about my advice to myself. That's a good idea. Advice is a bit of a funny word, isn't it? Anyway, because again, we were talking about this thing of not having the, the hierarchies and immediately yeah. it feels like, well, here are my 10 parts of knowledge. Yeah, I can so, have yeah. their advice to me. That'd yeah, be yeah, nice. that'd be good. You can, you um, can message that in, guys. But I feel like, and it's not to say I regret all the things I've done or danced in and with and for, but like, I think I would just, I confused being wanted with what I wanted. <laughs> so the fact that someone wants you to do something, wants you to take part in something, wants you to do a project and is excited, it's very flattering. And I feel like a lot of the time I was like, ah, oh, that must be what I want then. Yeah. And I see dancers really taking time to kind of go, is this what I care about? Is this what I want to do? Um, what if I, yeah. And it's so hard because all of this is in relation to an economic situation. Like who has the privilege to turn down work or to be that fucking fussy? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> uh, but I feel like there's something, I guess it comes back to practice. Like what are you building for yourself? So even as a dancer, if you identify as a dancer more than a maker or instead of a maker or, you know, all these things are kind of a bit more fluid, but what are you building for yourself? So not just as a dancer, but as a human in the world, what are you practicing? Because yeah, you get good at what you practice. Yeah. So I think, well, Lee Anderson said, I don't normally employ dance sluts, but you're an exception. No, dance tarts, <laughs> dance tarts, not sluts. Um, because I've been jobbing around just saying yes, yes. to every job. And, yeah, she yeah. It, and she was like, but I want you to do this. So I was like, yeah, at the end of that, you can be a bit dissipated if you're not honing something and I think you can hone something as a dancer and identify those people who care about the things you care about and meet them I think also I just want to kind of like fly the flag for like dance might be the thing you do in the morning to kind of get yourself going or when you go out and to 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 decentralize the kind of professional dance or the person who has a career without having to make a coffee and do a waiting job like as more than Yes. So I think yeah, yeah. Friends in New York, that was never even a luxury. So even back to the 90s, even through the 90s, the Stephen Petronio <laughs> dancers were all working by day on other things and in, in other jobs and then rehearsing in the evening because there wasn't the economic system to provide enough funding or the right kind of yeah government support for them to be in full-time employment as dancers. And these are the big companies, you know. Yeah. And I think that's it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, choice is privilege, but there's also a sort of uh, scarcity politics that that uh, invokes com competition between people rather than this kind of support, abundant kind of um, energy around what we're doing, maybe to kind of go, yeah, it's okay to uh, choose. Um, and also, yeah, I think that I think it's, it's so great because I'm thinking about Robin and Luca, who we'll be talking to afterwards and how they're both, you know, Robin's working in a bar, Luca's working in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and so we had that conversation around how, when can you call yourself a dancer or when can you call yourself an artist? And so I think it's so relevant to say whenever you're ready to, honey, you can might be doing more copies by day than you are, you know. Yeah. I was about to say Ronde de Jambes in the studio and I was like, oh, God, that's <laughs> ballet. And it, but, you know, but actually whenever you're ready to. Um, because, because if you're saying that's lesser than, you know, oh, I'm just waiting at the moment, I don't have a dance job. It's like, well, what does that mean for the person who's a waiter? Yeah. You know, as a, as a 
maybe not a vocation, but as a as a life choice, you know, it's like, well, are we that much more? Is it the fact that we roll around and think about being amoebas like better than, you know? It's like, it's just a different choice. So then there's a real hierarchy and a problem around that if we're, if we're doing that. Yeah, um, and I think the, the, the other conversation we were having was about how you might bring your dance knowledge and understanding to work like that you know um maybe yeah. there's those those somatic practices that you have by way of your practice that you bring to how you're serving your pints i don't know or avoiding the drunk people on the dance floor well, <laughs> and um, that's i mean i'm i'm kind of you know i'm saying that in a light-hearted way but i actually think it's much more than that because i think it is also about a practice of of empathy and uh, relating to people which in those service industries is like so important as well right with um with the with the dancers when we're doing the research for Century Project, one day I said, "Can you write three different projected, imagined ideas for dance or things that might be happening in dance in the future?" And Stephanie McMahon, Steph, um, wrote something around in a hundred years' time the the empathetic, maybe diplomatic or sensitive kind of like capacity of dancers is of such high value that they're milked <laughs> I love that like that becomes really yeah. important and then maybe that's in a kind of AI age or something like that like the empathy might be of so of so important and, and given such a central place that we, we milk dancers for their empathy I just thought it was so nice to kind of really re-centralize like what we do I mean on the other hand Becky Hilton brilliant mentor was like why are we always so frustrated with why dance is so niche? Like, it's brilliant. We're the cool kids. We're the back of the bus. We're in the margins. We just own this weird shit that we're into. It's like, not everyone gets it. Not everyone, sh you know, like, it's it's yeah, confusing. I brilliant. And, like, let's stop trying to be this kind of central place and build audiences. It's just, like, there's something very cool about it. And it yeah. just made me appreciate that margin. I think, yeah, I have to say, is working in academia, like, dance studies is, like, it's such a young marginalized subject within the academy and I can't and I love it for that like it's new and people are fucking making this shit up you know and that's so exciting yeah. because we don't yeah, have I mean, we don't have the canon right it's like the 90s there was this explosion the 90s with the air maxes and this explosion of thinking around it but it's not old it's 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 new all this stuff so yeah it's let's stay in the margins and be happy there but also uh value the fact that that has a lot of stuff to offer the world I yeah. guess yeah yeah exactly so I think that's a really nice place to to end this fascinating conversation which is like yeah it's so rich and I could carry on and make loads of metaphors about like weaving and uh, weaving the things <laughs> together but I won't um I'll spare the listeners that thank you so much Theo it's been an absolute pleasure and treat and I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions and comments and all of that so keep uh, your eyes peeled on the Dance Features podcast social media. Hi, Luca. Hi, Robin. Hello. Hey. So um, I could have talked to Theo for like forever, which is why it's ended up being an hour long interview as well, because I just thought there were so many gems in the things that he was saying. Have you had a listen? Anything stand out for you or like things that made a penny drop or a light bulb turn on? 
Yeah, yes. I mean, he's so nice to listen to. We love his voice. Yeah, we could. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, as I'm still in training, it was really interesting to hear his um, experience, um, his personal experience and his observations of um, other trainee dancers uh, and kind of their expectations of themselves when they finish training and what they're able to do um, yeah this um this comment he said about um which I thought like could just apply to so many situations in life to be honest he said I confused being wanted with what I wanted oh, and I was like oh yes so, so relatable <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways exactly right yeah I love that and also that um I wrote down a vehicle for someone else's movement, like yeah. running around and being like, I can do that for you. Like I'm this neutral body, this like blank slate that you can put your work onto your artwork and I'll just carry it for you rather than using that body. That's such a tool for your own personal ex exploration and, and work. And um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he talked about like the colonised body of the dancer and sort of that experience, which, like you said, Luca, maybe also to hear as a dancer in training is like really pertinent, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, uh, there's a point I wanted to pick up from you about... About... about um, sort of waiting to be um, following and from your point Robin about waiting to be perfect before you make anything mm. what you need to do is just sort of throw yourself into it and yeah like you might look back on the first five bits of work that you make or however many and go oh my god those are rubbish those really don't represent me as a uh, maker now but those were really important steps for me just to get confident with making things and I mm. really needed to hear that and yes yeah 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 encouraged me to sort yeah. of start making and, and not being afraid of it being rubbish mm. oh that's so great to hear and yeah, yeah I, lo I loved how like mm. open he was about like yeah so I was just googling like how to make a t-shirt rug <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like, if in doubt google it also aren't dancers wild <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like I'm just gonna make a t-shirt rug and yeah I'm just gonna make this piece on it and like gonna write some books it's gonna last 100 years <laughs> yeah, absolutely wild I'm so here for it I like you can come and watch it if you want yeah um... might be a bit boring <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really want to go and watch it oh my I'm god so I'm so invested in knowing where this... I, I want to be alive for 100 years now yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, we want to be alive for 100 years so we can see the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was fascinating, that whole thing about can we have empathy with dancers in the future we don't even know yet and this that idea of, like, how to use the imagination to, like, project forward like that. And like you say, Robin, it's, like, kind of, yeah, a wild idea. I think I find it super compelling, yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. I love it. I was, I was talking to a friend about this project and I was describing it to her and she sat there listening and by the end she was kind of visibly 
moved by this whole notion of how selfless it is to make a piece of work. Yeah. She couldn't quite articulate to me afterwards how it made her feel hearing that someone had started this piece of work that they're not actually going to see the end product of. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, I just, I, I, and it's, it's seeing her moved kind of really made me think about um, how much value we place on making uh, pieces of performance and reaping the reward at the end, getting, mm. getting in front of an audience and them clap for you or getting a few likes on a YouTube video that you post or on Instagram. And, and this project just really isn't about that. Yeah, that's so true. That's so that's really astute observation, Luke. Like that, when you sort of go, "Why do I perform?" and is it actually because I just want I want that approval? Yeah, I was literally listening to that. Like, my God, I'm a terrible person. Like, <laughs> no, <I'm> so vain. <laughs> like, I fully want to perform. I want to make a piece. Like, whether I'm performing or choreographing, I want the. Yeah, I want that satisfaction of mm. an end result and and the praise. Like, give me the praise, jeez. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a great endorphin rush. I guess the thing yeah. is, you like, we can open up these ideas of performance to these different ways of being, rather than that being the only way to perform mm. or something, isn't it? I guess, mm. um, and and different ways of watching as well, which is what he was talking about. So I don't think you should be like, I'm a terrible person because I want to applause. <laughs> this that's is... totally valid. And like, you deserve them, girl. You deserve <laughs> <to> clap. <laughs> this is why I'm going to believe in the afterlife because I'd like to think of like a ghostly Theo Clinkard stood at the back of the auditorium watching whatever the final product of this piece is. Yes. Maybe Theo knows that that is the case Theo has a secret and that's why he's like yeah no, I'm just really selfless but secretly he knows <laughs> he's gonna be a ghost <laughs> yeah or he's immortal it's giving a whole new meaning to the word ghosting right now <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Theo Klinkard ghosted me that's the maybe best. maybe dancers are going to be the first group of people to figure out how to do that <laughs> like, I think we deserve it yeah I agree I think yeah. so too <laughs> oh guys it's been great to talk to you um and i'm really inspired by the idea of us all trying to live a bit longer so that we can enjoy <laughs> the result of theo's work that's fantastic see you next time see you see next ya. time bye, bye.